Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host, 42. This week's topic is blood. So, let's dive right in with fact number one. Your blood has got gold in it. The human body is composed of many elements, even trace amounts of gold. If we, somewhat optimistically, imagine the average person weighs around 70 kilograms, that means the average human body contains 0.2 milligrams of gold. If you took all this gold out and purified it, then the total volume of gold in the body would be 10 nanoliters. If said bloody gold were then formed into a solid gold cube, it would only measure 0.22 millimeters on each side. Much of this gold is located in your blood, but if you're planning to get rich, then think again. If you did plan to harvest enough blood-infused gold to sell it, you'd need to drain about 40,000 people, and unless your surname happens to be Dracula, that's a lot of work. It once took me about half an hour to get 25 centiliters of damn blood out of a pinprick at the end of my finger to do an at-home blood test. At one point, I genuinely considered just chopping my finger off to get the damn thing over with. Anyway, from those 40,000 people, you'd only end up with around 8 ounces or 25 grams of gold. Honestly, you carry out thousands of grisly murders... And what do you get in return? Absolutely nothing. Iron, on the other hand, is far more abundant. There are 3 to 4 grams of iron floating through your veins. Iron also helps your red blood cells to maintain their circular shape. So, if you want to keep in shape, you could try licking an iron. Ow! Preferably unplug it first. But is all this stuff coursing through your veins really necessary? The gold, I mean, not your blood. That's pretty important. For years, scientists had no idea what gold's role in the physiological processes of the human body was. They just thought, well, that's a bit weird, and left it be. But then they finally figured it out, after doing more important stuff like, you know, feeding cocaine to spiders and stuff. And it turns out, gold is vitally important for maintaining your joints. We also discovered gold is a key element to aid the transmission of electrical signals through the human body. Which is really handy to know, especially if your name is Frankenstein, and you just happen to have started work on an ambitious new science project. In several biomedical fields, gold nanoparticles have been used as a drug delivery system. But where does all this metal inside our bodies actually come from? Well, believe it or not, 0.3% of Earth's precious metals were formed during one particular explosion when two neuron stars collided 4.6 billion years ago. This gave us gold, silver, 
platinum and uranium, which also happen to be the planet's most commercially valuable metals. Yes, that's right, dear listener. You are made up of leftover rubbish from two very ancient and very distant stars. Next up, moments from history. Where we dive into one particularly odd moment from the past. In this episode, we talk about the time Apollo 10's journey back to Earth was delayed by a floating poo. Of course, we all know it was the Apollo 11 crew who managed to be the first to land on the moon. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. But Apollo 10 was basically the dress rehearsal for it. In May 1969, it became the second crewed mission in the Apollo program to orbit the moon. The idea was to do a final test of every little procedure, every component, and every step of the operation besides the landing itself. The Apollo 10 crew consisted of astronauts Thomas Stafford, Gene Cernan, and John Young. Young had the lonely job of orbiting the moon in the command module, whilst Commander Stafford and Lunar Module Pilot Cernan flew down to an orbit within 8.4 nautical miles of the moon's surface. This was the exact point at which Apollo 11 would later begin its powered descent for landing. Only two months later. Apollo 10, however, orbited the moon 31 times before starting its journey back to Earth. They obviously didn't like the moon very much because they returned to Earth at 24,791 miles per hour, which set the record for the highest speed attained by a crewed vehicle. However, before they could make their epic return journey back home, they had a pretty gross obstruction to deal with. As they were making preparations to leave the moon's orbit, Stafford abruptly said, Oh, who did it? To which Jung replied, Who did what? Then Cernan interrupted with, Where did that come from? Stafford solved this little mystery with the following line, Give me a napkin quick. There's a turd floating through the air. <coughs> which just has to be the most inspiring NASA quote since One Small Step for Man. This led to a heated debate amongst the astronauts as to exactly who'd produced the airborne bottom log, and turd denial is probably not something that's covered in astronaut school. I don't know whose that is, said Cernan. I can neither claim it nor disclaim it. Mm, yeah, I, my money's on Cernan, definitely. <laughs> Seems very suspicious to me. They barely had time to figure it out, though because just nine minutes later, they were visited by yet another levitating poo. Here's another goddamn turd, said Cernan. What's the matter with you guys? Then for the next nine minutes, there was much discussion about it, all of which boiled down to the three astronauts saying, it wasn't me. You see, in those days, NASA's waste management system consisted of a simple plastic bag 
which could be taped to the buttocks. This obviously made it pretty easy for stubborn turds to escape and float around the spacecraft in the low gravity atmosphere. NASA realised pretty early on that if they wanted to keep astronauts in space for more than a few hours, they needed to figure out how to get rid of number twos. Number ones had already proved tricky enough. In 1961, astronaut Alan Shepard ended up having to urinate in his spacesuit after waiting five hours for a 15-minute long space flight. I've had the same urge whilst waiting for the bus. Unfortunately, I didn't have a bus suit I could piss in. In 1963, astronaut Gordon Cooper's Project Mercury capsule experienced several problems due to a leaking urine bag. Poo disposal, however, was pretty vital because, in weightless conditions, the human body experiences quote-unquote decreased gastrointestinal transit time. In other words, despite being fed a special low-fibre diet three days before launch, astronauts shit a lot more often. <coughs> and not just because they're being fired into space on top of a nuclear missile. And believe it or not, the simple plastic bag taped to the arse approach seemed to work best. There was also a germicidal tablet inside the bag. This was there in order to kill bacteria and prevent gases from building up. Because, you know, without the tablet, shitting in a bag is just plain disgusting. This was known as the Apollo Fecal Collection System. Snappy name. It does exactly what it says on the tin. Or bag in this case. In 1972, NASA carried out an analysis of the system where they claimed the primary problem was the separation of turd from astronaut, given the weightless environment. Even though this podcast is purely an auditory experience, you may want to avoid picturing that one inside your head, but to put it simply, it's rather difficult to push something that has no weight. Stafford denied the floating turd because he had an excuse. In the form of, mine was a little more sticky than that. How did he know it was more sticky? Well, he was able to judge the stickiness of his own excretion due to something called the finger cut. Yes, as NASA had established, it was another mission entirely just to remove poop from the butthole. And because of this, the shit bag, for lack of a better word, came included with a little device called a finger cot. It could be described as a condom for the finger, which was used to manoeuvre the poo from the buttocks into the bag. So do bear that in mind if you ever get the chance to shake hands with an astronaut. Oh, gross. It seems oh so glamorous being an astronaut, doesn't it? Crossing new boundaries... Exploring the frontiers of outer space. Oh, and fingering your arsehole in zero gravity. NASA claims that nothing has been more successful in this system, but it's also mentioned that it's not popular with the astronauts. No shit! Thankfully these days, things are a little more advanced. The International Space Station has a vacuum-powered toilet, complete with a seatbelt for those particularly bumpy evacuations. 
According to NASA, all mission objectives for Apollo 10 were achieved, but it was later revealed that it could have actually ended in disaster. Orbital phase initiated. During the descent stage separation, the lunar module began to roll unexpectedly, meaning that Cernan and Stafford saw the horizon spinning eight times in quick succession, and no doubt released a few more floating turds in the process. Apollo 10 was also the first Apollo spacecraft to make live colour TV transmissions from space, so it was slightly awkward when Cernan and Stafford let out several choice words during the broadcast. NASA later confirmed that given just a few more revolutions, the module could have crashed into the moon's surface. But they didn't, and they eventually returned to Earth on the 26th of May, splashing down in the Pacific Ocean, about 400 nautical miles east of American Samoa. Yet, 50 years on, it still hasn't been determined who produced the floating poo. Houston, we have a problem. I'll let you absorb all that information whilst we take a short break. And afterwards, we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. Ancient Egyptians believed that wine was the blood of people who'd battled against the gods. Ancient Egyptians believed that wine was the blood of people who'd battled against the gods. In 3000 BC, grape cultivation was introduced to the Nile Delta, which led to a thriving industry in royal winemaking. This was possibly due to trade which occurred in the early Bronze Age between Canaan and Egypt. Depictions of winemaking scenes can be seen on tomb walls dating back to the beginning of the Old Kingdom period, around the 27th century BC. Thirty-six wine amphorae were found, and six of them carried the name Kai, head winemaker of the royals. Some of them even contained a sediment from white wine, which may have been produced by Egyptians themselves, but probably came into the country through trade. However, wine in Egypt was predominantly red, partly due to its resemblance to blood. This was because the ancient Egyptians held many superstitions based around red wine, including that red wine was the blood of those who'd battled against the gods. The idea was that once these foolish folks had died in battle, because they were trying to pick a fight with goddamn gods, they'd become one with the earth, and from those places, vines would appear. For the Egyptians, this also explains the intoxicating effects of red wine. Men were driven out of their senses because they consumed the blood of crazed warriors who picked a fight with the gods. So next time you stumble home and can't get your key in the door, try appeasing your upset spouse with the following excuse. Sorry, dear, I've been battling with the gods all night. 
But you know, the Egyptians, they were obsessed with their metaphors, and blood and wine were inextricably linked for another reason. The demonic Egyptian god of execution, Shesmu, was not only the god of execution, but also oil, perfume, blood, slaughter, and yes, you guessed it, wine. That's quite a laundry list of things to take care of, isn't it? And strangely contradictory. Because we all enjoy a nice glass of Cabernet Sauvignon after a hard day of slaughter and execution. Shesmu ah! had quite a few rather pleasant nicknames, including Slaughterer of Souls and Lord of Blood. Which sounds like some of my old nicknames from World of Warcraft. But he was also known as the Executioner of Osiris, and he took orders directly from Osiris, God of the Dead. And one of these duties was to turn the blood of the wicked into wine. He would rip the heads off the wicked dead, throw them into a wine press, and crush them until they produced bloody red wine which he offered to the righteous dead who'd recently passed into the afterlife. I think I saw that recipe on the Food Network once. Fact number three. Doctors still use leeches to treat disease. Over a span of 2,000 years, from antiquity until the late 18th century, bloodletting was the most common practice carried out by surgeons and doctors of the day. I mean, calling them surgeons and doctors is pretty optimistic, from a modern lens anyway. As the name suggests, this involved letting blood from a patient in order to cure an illness. I shouldn't have to tell you this, but please don't start poking holes in yourself if you get a little sniffle. You see, blood was one of the four humours. Originating from ancient Greece, these were blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. And if they fell out of balance, you became ill. <coughs> so, drawing blood was a way to rebalance them. Obviously. Bloodletting was thought to cure pretty much anything and everything, including asthma, cancer, cholera, comas, diabetes, epilepsy, gangrene, insanity, leprosy, plague, pneumonia, smallpox, tuberculosis, idiocy, and even heartbreak. <laughs> to be fair, many angry exes still try to cure their heartbreak today, by drawing blood from their recently <laughs> beloved. To let blood, arteries would be punctured, and blood was withdrawn using a syringe. There was even a lovely sounding instrument called a sacrificator, which is difficult to describe on a podcast, but let's just say it involved a variety of springs and blades. It kind of looks like something that would pop up if you dared to search for BDSM on the dark web. And then, of course, there were leeches. 
Sometimes those sucky little bastards got carried away and drew too much blood, causing the patient to pass out. However, this was generally considered to be a good thing, indicating a thorough treatment. As soon as the patient started to swoon, the treatment was considered complete. Imagine if you visited your local GP to be told, just hold still Mrs Jones whilst I knock you out with this chloroform soaked handkerchief. Despite astounding medical advances over the past few centuries, believe it or not, leeches still help doctors to carry out their daily duties, even today. The medicinal use of leeches is known as herodotherapy from the creature's scientific name, Herodonea. It's not widely used, of course. I've never been down my local doctors to see the GP chucking leeches in the face of every pensioner who walked through the door, but there are some very specific medical conditions in which leeches can save limbs or even lives. It's particularly useful in reattachment operations, skin grafts, and reconstructive surgery. These often require microsurgical techniques in order to attach ridiculously small blood vessels using ridiculously small needles and sutures. But working on such a microscopic level isn't easy, and if the blood vessels aren't properly connected, all sorts of issues can occur. On rare occasions, a flap of skin, or a reattached body part, can develop a dangerous condition called a venous congestion. Where the veins are unable to carry blood away from the site of the surgery. The blood therefore has no choice but to pool within the veins and it can make its way back to the heart and lungs. This means that it won't be reoxygenated, carbon dioxide will accumulate in the blood and the tissue will die. And the very last thing you want is for your limbs to drop off, never mind your flaps. And this is where the medieval favourite, the leech, comes in. Now, you may think, ah, leeches suck blood, so it's to relieve the pooling of blood. But that can be done with suction tubes these days. No, leeches are actually used primarily because of their saliva. Their saliva contains an antiplatelet called hirudin. In simple language, leech saliva can prevent blood clots. And when a leech bites you, it contains a naturally occurring anaesthetic, so the treatment is completely painless. Annoyingly for doctors, however, leeches prefer to suck their blood from healthy tissue. So, nurses usually get around this by covering the area with some gauze or Vaseline, tricking the gullible leech into munching the unhealthy tissue for the duration of the treatment. That's right, even leeches have standards. After the leech has been attached, it will feed for around 20 minutes before saying, stick a fork in me, I'm done and just falling off on the floor. Once they drop off, they're disposed of as medical waste. 
Which is hardly the best way to say, thank you very much for saving my life, Mr. Leech. Even after the leech is detached from the area, however, Hiridan stays in the patient's system for quite some time, keeping the patient's blood flowing freely. And a new leech doesn't have to be attached until 6 to 12 hours later. This obviously requires a steady supply of bloodsuckers. So where do they all come from? You can order some weird shit on Amazon, but last time I checked, leeches weren't one of them. Well, there are special leech farms, which breed leeches specifically for medicinal use. In 2004, the US Food and Drug Administration recognised leeches as living, breathing medical devices and approved them for use in venous congestion. But there is one major problem with medicinal leech therapy. Leeches aren't that cute, to put it mildly. And people tend to be slightly squeamish about them. Doctors who've used it say that although they've rarely had a patient outright refuse the treatment, the majority do take quite a lot of convincing. The majority usually acquiesce after the doctor offers to suck the blood instead. All doctors to the ER. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Random Interesting Facts. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review it. And subscribe so you never miss another episode. Also, if you have a random interesting fact that you're just dying to share with me, then tweet it at me using the hashtag RiffPodcast. That's R-I-F Podcast. Each week I'll choose my favourite fan-submitted fact and read it out at the end of the episode. Thank you.